Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Have you ever been given an opportunity that you don't quite feel qualified for, but you remind yourself of your favorite Mark Twain quote, with ignorance and arrogance, success is assured, and you step calmly into the void? Maybe you go up, you put on your best whiskey-inspired demeanor, and you ask out that hot blonde girl, sure, that she will say no, and then turns out she has self-confidence issues, doesn't realize she's hot, she agrees to date you, and now you've got a wife. Or maybe you've been in an interview for the next big job, and they ask you, you know, tell us why we should hire you. What's your greatest strength? And you hit them with a somewhat prepared line saying, you know, my greatest strength is I can learn anything. I'll just do it until I can do it. You see them nodding their head. You leave out the fact that within the past week, you had shit your pants as an adult, but you get the job. But for me, this here podcast is one of those opportunities. You know, I started this whole thing, this curiously disagreeable after realizing that, you know, it might be 10 or 15 years before I'm rich as hell. I can't just sell my life and live by society's rules. You know, it was many moons ago at a three-day metal concert. Currently, at the time, I was a financial advisor wearing suits to work every day. My life was horrible. This metal concert, a brief respite. We were drinking whiskey at 10 a.m. in the attempt to be frugal and not pay $15 per beer like we would have to if we went inside and paid. We're getting lit. It's awesome. We go into the festival. My actual somewhat crazy friend had stolen an industrial lab coat from his work and was having girls sign it. But his pickup line was, hi, I escaped from a psych ward. I need a wife. And, uh, you know, it was like not really catching on. And then the weather came back, a rain delay, three hours. We drank whiskey out of the trunk and blasted metal louder than the actual concert. We practiced our death metal screaming, wild, passionate animals, surrounded by other cars. But where, if we did that at a Purdue University football game, we would have been nicely escorted to jail. We looked around and thousands of people were engaging in the same activities. And I came out of my body. I realized, God damn it. It might be 10 or 15 years before I'm rich as fuck. I can't sell my soul as a financial advisor. I just can't do it. And I can't do it living life set forth by the rules dictated down by society's elders. And I resolved that, hey, I still probably do want to you know, make lots of money, but I must do it while self-actualizing. And so I got a couple tattoos. I used more bad words at work, got a new job, and this podcast was born. The simple belief that the best arbitrage opportunities in the world, those investments which have 1,000 or 10,000% returns, are reading and downloading nonfiction books into your fucking soul. And so, 
going in on life-changing books, finding the 20% and shouting into the void has become this podcast. And I have some faithful listeners, but one of my most successful series was this series called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Now go listen to it. Uh, maybe if I'm not too lazy, I'll like link it somewhere smart. Um, but it's, you know, just look at the whole list of episodes, you'll find it. But um, Naval had this series called How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. And I'm like, God damn it, I need some of that in my life. And I've I listened to his uh, like three hour long form podcast version and then just the web of the internet made me find the almanac of Naval Ravikant where Eric Jorgensen had distilled all of Naval's writings including that tweet storm into a book. I read it. I used my SDR and sales skills to harass Eric Jorgensen. I was like, dude, hey. Listen, here's a fucking podcast. I promise I will send you a $25 gift card to Sandwiches if you don't like it because he loves sandwiches. And in a weirdly life-affirming twist of fate, he listened to it. And he responded, cool pod, dude. And I came. And so I went on my merry way working an insane sales job as my main life's task, but holding the line of discipline and still doing my podcast. And that was when I saw Eric had a new book and I channeled my inner Alex Hormozzi and I made him an offer he would feel stupid to refuse. I said, hey, Eric, bitch, I mean, buddy, if you send me your book, I will give you my unbiased and somewhat depraved review and assuming it doesn't suck ass, I'll cover it on my podcast. He was cautiously open, though, um... He did bring up the fact that he's quite a professional fellow, and um, on my last series, I gave a logically consistent uh, example about how if you're a doctor and you work at a butthole inspecting clinic, you're only going to get rich by inspecting more buttholes. There's no non-linearity. And he's like, hey, I'm not sure I can agree to promote this, you know, see exhibit butthole clinic last episode, but I'll send it to you and we'll see what happens. And recently... He sent me his book, pre-release. And so what follows is my best effort, my greatest work. And I'll try to honor his wishes and not say butthole too much. But in the end, we only have one life. And the lesson I learned in the back of that car at the metal concert, drinking trunk whiskey and death metal screaming is authenticity above all. And so I accept death. I accept the outcome that I send this back to Eric for pre-review, and he's shocked, horrified, somewhat amused, but in the way that a Cirque du Soleil performer probably wouldn't want to associate their good name with an 1800s freak show. $5 to see Lobster Boy, uh, excuse me, we're Cirque du Soleil. He maybe, maybe declines to promote this at all. But that, my praise, is a risk I'm willing to take. I cannot lie, I have webbed feet, and I'm here to... And so, who is Eric and what is this book? Well, go listen to the Almanac of Naval uh, Ravikant for full background. Um, I think I was so nonconformist that like, I knew that I wasn't spelling it right in the title and I still just decided to not spell it the way that Eric spelled it and I'm not going back and changing it. But, dealt with Eric once before. But here's my, here's my introduction again of Eric Jorgensen. He's f- six foot seven. 260 pounds of lean, strong muscle. 
He has a physique reminiscent of a younger, smarter Frank Zane and forearm definition and vascularity that forces him to always wear long sleeve shirts when he goes out in public or else risk his life as thousands of females break the laws of physics, spontaneously generate around him and attempt to steal his seed with the ferocity only seen in food-motivated bottle-fed livestock and sharks. He's an investor, content creator, CEO, and straight goddamn hustler. And my priest? I can say with the full confidence of an American man that Eric lives up to the heroic ideal put forth in the Hagakure 1600 Samurai Manual. Check it out. And is, dare I say, a kusemono. And one of Eric's projects is to reach out to hyper-successful entrepreneurs who've been blasting value into the void and say, Hey there, little guy. I know you're rich as fuck and busy changing the world and ain't got time to write a book. How about this? If you let me use your name, I'll spend a thousand hours of my life, 20% of my global life force, and use critical thinking to collect everything you've ever written, spoken, and shouted into the internet. I'll organize it. I'll put it into a book. If you hate it, I'll kill myself. If you like it, I'll do all the promotion. I'll give you a cut of the money, and I would just ask for you to retweet me a couple times. And he started this with his book on Naval, and is continuing this trend with his book on Balaji the anthology of Balaji. And that is what we are here to learn about today. Now, who is this Balaji fellow and why is he special enough to get a damn anthology? Well, great question. A little backdrop. Did you know that even though the Mayans built all those giant stone sculptures and temples and we're all like, what the fuck? That's so crazy. There must have been aliens. They didn't even have the wheel, but actually they did but only the kids had the wheel. Mayan children's toys had been found. Wheels. But the idea of putting wheels on drag sleds and everyone's life got better, those two never combined. And I share that because there are people that think that cryptocurrency, a token system overlaying impenetrable database technology where everyone's economic incentives align to do the right thing, is the wheel. And it's still a little early to tell, in my humble opinion. You know, there's this concept of plank road fever. When the U.S. was expanding and they needed more roads, some enterprising entrepreneur was like, hey, if you pay me some money, I'll build you these awesome plank roads. And they actually worked for like seven years. And then they rotted. And so no city would ever do the investment of buying these plank roads if they actually ran the numbers and they only lasted for seven years or whatever. And so it ended up what looked like a possible solution turned out to just be plank road fever and a giant bubble. Maybe cryptos like that. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe we're just at the beginning stages. We found a bunch of mushrooms in the forest and ate them, hoped they weren't poisonous. They weren't, but we started to feel a little funny. We found ourselves in the spirit world. We happened to pass out next to a children's wheel and next to a cart. And in our mushroom-induced haze, we kept looking back and forth, and our brain, able to see patterns better than ever, started to think, what the fuck? Maybe we should put a wheel on the cart and it would roll and everyone was yelling at us now partly that was because we were covered in shitting on mushrooms but nobody believed but we were right if you combine a drag sled with the wheel society humanity our entire species entered a new level of prosperity 
And if cryptocurrency is the wheel, I go on record to say that Balaji knows more about wheels than Frodo Baggins knows about being scared but still doing the heroic thing. So who is Balaji? He's yin to Naval's yang. Now he's of, of Indian descent, but I can proudly state he's American. He loves reading books. He grew up in New York, just like Naval. Started some companies, got rich as fuck, boy, and one of the most articulate speakers and thinkers I've ever heard in my life. Somebody will ask him a question like, what is crypto? And he'll respond with a seven minute TED talk level answer that goes something like this. So in 1777, we just invented a new type of sailboat, but there was a problem. Pirates, see, the principal agent problem is when the captain of the ship wants what is best for the ship, but the sailors on the ship just want to look out for themselves, and there's no way for these sailors to solve this pirate problem. Fast forward 300 years on a different sea, the sea of the internet, and cryptocurrency looms like a mirage. And everyone's just sitting there like they were expecting some bullshit answer like, oh, it's, it's online money. And they're in, but they're sitting there and they just have increased blood flow to both the penis and the brain. And they're thinking, God damn it, there's something going on with this guy. That is who Balaji is. But where Naval liked books, but when he was getting bullied, he realized, hey, if I spend all my time in the library and get, a, and get really articulate, I can outthink the bullies. See, Balaji, he was really good at thinking too. But he also realized there's nothing quite like turning your hips into a vicious body shot, feeling the bully's rib cage depressed 12 inches, watching him fall to the ground, and turning to the other bullies like Leonidas did right before he kicked the emissary into the hole in 300. See, Balaji learned another solution to the prisoner's dilemma known as you're a 12-year-old brown kid in New York City surrounded by pretentious assholes who now, 30 years later, still work at Kohl's was to get nuts, to out-crazy the bullies, shouting phrases like, I will eat my own penis, I'm ready to die, and charging headlong into the fray, getting detention, but realizing the same lesson that Naval realized in the library, that man, one can learn a lot from reading books. And so, like the double helix structure of DNA, though they began with different paths, Naval and Balaji both end up at the same point, honored to be in the presence of our hero, Eric Jorgensen. Because, see, this book is a similar concept to the almanac of Naval Ravikant, a collection of all of Balaji's wisdom in one place for us monkeys in human coats to slurp up and use to become rich, jack, and gods among men. And so, my priests, once again we find ourselves in the elephant graveyard desperate for meat. But I promise you, if you hold out, if you make it through, this might just be the book that gives you two sets of irises in your eyes. One, which is your normal eyes, and two, the black dog eyes of the devil. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We're going to take a breath here. All right. Okay. We've taken a breath and we've acquired whiskey because that'll definitely calm us down. Into the book. The Anthology of Balaji. A Guide to Technology, Truth, and Building the Future. Introduction by Balaji Srinivasan. Srinivasan. We're hoping that that's right. I didn't Google it. Forgive me, Balaji. I was a little reticent about the very idea of a, of a biography of a living person, namely myself but then this handsome fellow named eric 
approached me and I decided, well, shit, I'm rich, son. And I agreed. I said, okay, Eric, guy, you write the book. I'll write the intro. But this led me to my second quandary. See, to write an introduction, you need to know who the book is for. He says, was this going to be a tech self-help book, an investing book, an engineering book? And he goes down the list and he says, you know, there's a lot of people who are better at tech self-help. There's a lot of better investors. I'm like a decent engineer, but there's better engineers. But after thinking about it, he says, his niche is he's the id of technology, which presupposes that we know a little bit about Sigmund Freud, where like the id is like the essence. Uh, it's like where the animal instincts and the deep soul manifests. So like the id of Indiana is that viral video of that guy being interviewed at, in the snake pit at the Indy 500, and he's just hammered, and he's like, oh, I've been drinking since 10 a.m. I don't know where I am or what's going on, but I love watching these cars turn left. That's the id of Indiana, and Balaji is the id of technology. So he's not the best at any of those he just mentioned, but when you cut into him, he doesn't bleed. He leaks fucking nanobots because his soul is technology. He's the one who says what tech thinks. When what does he say? He asks, well, that the internet is to the USA what the Americans once were to the UK, a frontier territory where all the action is. That just like the Western frontier gave rise to an American pioneer class, the internet frontier has given rise to a global technology class. That this class is not defined by inherited wealth or wearing stupid fucking wigs, I don't think he said that, but by the ability to create wealth and found new institutions. And that these new institutions will eventually include not just new companies and currencies, but new cities and even new countries. What the fuck? God damn it. New countries on the internet. Lord Jesus, I need your strength. And so, yes, forgive me, Mr. Jorgensen, for I accept that I'm already dead and that you will not share this. But it must be done and Bushido demands. Every time my mind is blown, I'm going to take a sip of whiskey. Ah, this whiskey is sponsored by podcast. And if we make it through all of this, Balaji says, perhaps some of what he says will be your views too. So that is what is in store for us today. Eric Jorgensen's introduction. Have you ever wanted to sit next to Balaji, maybe naked at a massage parlor, but the upscale kind, covered in a towel, the cucumbers and mud on your eyes or however the fuck that works? <laughs> hmm. I don't think I was taking great notes on that, but we're going with it. You drift into deep relaxation. Take a nip of absinthe from your flask. Pass it to Balaji, who shakes his head no and points down to his perfectly defined six-pack and shrugs with a look that conveys, hey man, I'm not going to judge you. You do you. But this body, this body's a fucking machine and it only takes premium fuel. You, on the other hand, couldn't imagine a spa day without absinthe. So it's all good. You shrug back. You take a second nip of the flask and you ask Balaji, so, Balaji, Tell me everything you wish you would have known when you were 20. Eric says, I created this book from hundreds of hours of podcasts, posts, and tweets over the last decade. I've given you the best of Balaji in a few hours of reading. Balaji is a brilliant entrepreneur, engineer, investor, and futurist. His ideas are unique 
insightful, and often divisive. You may not like or agree with what you've read here, but you will think new thoughts and see the world differently by the end. Eric says, I gained a new lens on the world from this book. I hope you find the same joy. I find myself living differently after writing this book. It inspired investments in drone construction, nuclear react, and health changes. He says, I've accepted I'm maybe going to live to be 120. <laughs> me too, dog. The ideas in this book give me an appreciation for our place in the history unfolding today and impatience for the many ways we're punching ourselves in the face, Eric says. And he breaks this book down into three parts. Okay, the first is technology. And so this is like Balaji just just yelling about how awesome technology is. He's like cutting his arm and he's bleeding, but he's collecting the nanobots and he's like, look, these are next, next gen nanobots. And we're like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? The second, which we're gonna really skim through, dipping our toes into it, Blodgy has a lot of opinions on truth. Now, when you're famous, you're on social media a lot and you see just the filth that, that social media creates. And, and especially if you're famous, rich, and you've started big companies, you, you're like, man, someone needs to fix this. And so he, he lays out some thoughts on, like, what is truth? We're going to cover it, but bitch, I, that's an that's a, that's a after I'm famous problem. And third is building the future. It's his tactical advice for starting a company or a protocol or a nonprofit or a country and all the things that we should think about if we want to become rich, jacked, and gods among men. Eric says, these ideas may change your life, your community, and maybe the future of our species. God damn it, drink. <sighs> it's been 30 years since the wolf and the winter cold. Here is Balaji in his own words. I grew up on Long Island in New York. Both my parents were physicians. They were immigrants from India in a time and culture where long distance calls were expensive and mail was slow. They were cut off from their home culture. My parents were working all the time. They had sick relatives. I escaped to an inner world of fiction and reading, flying through books. That was my life for many, many years. For the first 13 years of my conscious life, school was a prison-like environment. You must go there every day. You cannot leave. You have no control over your environment. You can't avoid other kids. And I was simply not part of the social network. Being the only brown kid among hundreds of people Lots of kids would gang up on you and call you Gandhi. That's what, so he's just describing how like, for the first 13 years of Balaji's life, he's like, if this all there is, I'm going to go, I'm join the military, dude. This fucking sucks. But he learned that the first guy who came at him, he needed to hit him, bam, and just act crazy so the other guys wouldn't jump him. Later, at the principal's office, the assailants would have crocodile tears about how the mean little Indian boy had started a fight. I learned early on that you've got to stand up for yourself, that the state is against you. Jesus Christ, Balaji. So intense. The teachers wouldn't protect me, so I learned to fight. I ended up in detention a lot, but detention was great because I could read in peace. At the front of the school rankings were both honor roll rankings and detention rankings. I was always at the top of both. <laughs> it's like at the front of your school, there's a ranking for like most kills and most community service hours. In Balaji, he wins both. 
Eventually, I got enough context on American culture. I learned to, I learned to fit in. I started lifting weights, and I got fucking jacked. In sports, football and lacrosse, uh, there, were, there was a policy of no cuts if you were persistent. So I made it through Hell Week in the summer and became the nth string cornerback and midfielder on the football and lacrosse team, respectively. This was a useful experience for me because I learned to strengthen things that were previously weak areas. I brought an area from 0 to 5 out of 10 just by grinding through it. Those are my character traits. Good at math, disobedient, grind when I have to, and harshly assess my weaknesses. This was a disadvantage early on, but it paid off later in life. The benefits of disobedience kept increasing as I got older. In venture capital and content creation, originality is really, really valued. The combination of being analytical and not fully obedient has been important. If you've seen a movie where someone is frozen in a block of ice before they thaw and get to experience the world, that's what life felt like to me before going to college. Everything moved in very slow motion until college. Then things sped up a lot. He went to Stanford. He got a BS, MS, PhD in electrical engineering and an MS in chemical engineering. So Balaji just like, gets, gets a lot of school done. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Then he founded a startup, legit, just so he could get better access to data. He kind of, you know, like breezes over it, but you know, we sold the company for $375 million. And he says, I'm also an angel investor. In crypto, I was early to Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, and others. In 2013, I became a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. So it's coming full circle. Go listen to the Hard Thing About Hard Things series by our boy, Ben Horowitz. Yeah, Balaji's, Balaji's also boys with him, but actually in real life, I just like read his book and yelled into the internet. Then he became the CTO, Chief Technology Officer of Coinbase. I have a long-term time horizon. I have my eyes set on the long-term goal of transhumanism. My pronouns are robot, but I'm willing to be pragmatic and execute in the short term. I go down the to-do list toward the North Star. Every few years, I feel like my life starts anew. I'm in my 40s now. Dude, life is going fast. But I feel like I've just started because I built up various resources like distribution, network, and capital. Now, I can broadcast ideas, invest money, and see big things happen. The past has all been a prologue. Now, I've got a canvas to play with. Some people make a little bit of money and sit on a beach. Not me. I think of money as a stick of dynamite. It is leverage to go blow up obstacles in the path of my next goal. This is the type of fellow we're dealing with. I'd like to see us ethically and technologically aligned on progress. I'd like to see humanity believing math is good. Believing nuclear power is good. Believing getting to Mars is good. Believing expanding is good. In my lifetime, I want to see humanity work towards infinity. <sighs> That's not even part one. Part one, technology. And so this is, you know, like any lack of organization here, taking no ownership. It's all Eric Jorgensen's fault. Um, but this is his, you know, like musings on technology. So, so somewhat organized, but also just like pulling up the chair next to the jacked guy at the gym and saying, Hey, can you run me through your cycle? And he pretends like he doesn't take steroids and he's like, come out back. And then you get on trend. Jeez. <sighs> Breathing. 
Putting in a lot of labor doesn't necessarily generate value. Putting in the right technology often does. Balaji says, I'm not money, I'm not money motivated. I know some people are. Now, I will also say, I bet selling a company for 375 million smackers possibly dilutes the, the like feeling of money. But in any case, Balaji isn't motivated by money. I wear the same t-shirts I wore in grad school. I don't own cars or anything like that. I look at money as a tool to build things I can't buy today. Elon Musk is building SpaceX because he can't buy a trip to Mars. You can have all the money in the world but you can't buy a trip to Mars. A hundred years ago, the richest man in the world couldn't buy an iPhone. That's the kind of progress I care about. Yeah, uh, there's some pictures of Balaji online and he's just like jacked in a hoodie with a shaved head. He's like, you know what? I don't even have time for hair. We don't have an unambiguous metric for progress, but if you must pick one, we can make a strong case for life expectancy. True technologist, should aspire to change physical metrics. We can change life expectancy from 70 to 150 years. We need to focus on truly transformational technologies, not just, not just life extension, but brain machine interfaces, limb regeneration, curing deafness and bionic eyes, drink. But think of the children, think of the emotions. Why accept 30,000, <laughs> Why accept 30,000 deaths per year rather than speed up the development of self-driving cars? We let regulators tell us we can't create life-saving biomedicine. Business is simply a vehicle to push the future forward and drive human progress. Whether that is accomplished through an open source project, an academic paper, a research lab, the tool doesn't matter. The goal is to advance technology to build a better steam engine. If the purpose of technology is to reduce scarcity, then the ultimate purpose of technology is to eliminate death. Dude, okay. We're not gonna drink on that one, but fuck. If we had more time or infinite time, we would be less concerned with whether something is faster. The reason speed has value is because time has value. The reason time has value is because human lifespans are finite. I don't know. I feel like if I put my hand on a stove, the reason that I want to take it off is not because it's like wasting my time. It's because it like hurts so much, but I get what he's saying. He's building a pretty good logical case. I'm down. Life extension is the most important thing we can invent. We need to take the winnings from our web apps and put them towards Mars to feel no hesitation to start small and no shame in dreaming big, to tell the world it is possible to cure the deaf, restore sight, and end death itself. Eric, is this how this entire book is gonna be? I'm gonna die. Value creation comes from technology. Some people believe value comes directly from labor. They wanna price something based on the number of labor hours that went into it. If it takes five hours of a surgeon's time to do a procedure, it is expensive. If it takes one hour, it is cheaper. At first, this seems reasonable, except people pay for the value provided to them. They pay for the impact on them, not the cost to provide it. So think of muskets 
Dude, it truly might take a master craftsman doing it the old way, like 400 hours to craft you a perfect musket. And the market price in today's dollars would need to be like 3,200 bucks for that to be profitable. I can go buy a Smith & Wesson AR-15 for 500 bucks that is, I don't know, 750 times better and costs way less. Rather than the labor theory of value, I think about the technology theory of value. The actual value injection is from technology. Think about a light bulb rather than candles. Technology is actually where the value creation is happening. We can see this most clearly on the computer. Accelerating robotics mean more and more value is created on the computer. We don't fully realize this because today we see software affecting only screens. But once more robots are moving among physical space, this will also change. So he's just saying that like, when people don't understand the world, they think that things should be priced based on how long it takes. And so something takes a long time, it should cost more. And he's like, actually, that's like a part of it. And that, but really, whatever the value something provides is, is how much people are willing to pay for it. Like if I'm bleeding out and the tourniquet, and the tourniquet costs the company one cent to make, but they charge me 500 bucks, hey, I will pay that, no problem. It's not, you know, like I've got to make handcrafted wicker baskets to charge 500 bucks. And he's saying, taking it one step further, that value is actually created by the technology and, and shit's about to get crazy because software is one of the best ways to create value Right now, we just see it on our screens, you know, our laptops, our phones, soon our VR glasses, but, but eventually, you know, there's gonna be robots everywhere, he says. Eventually, everything we can think of basically will be reduced to software. Imagine robots with a universality similar to humans or even better. The only difference is the software to make them more efficient. All the non-software components are gradually going to get commoditized. We're going to robotify a lot of things. We, all, we will have self-driving trucks and fully robotic ports. We will generalize the concept of printing things out on paper to ultimately printing out any material thing like a bowl of food, drink. And so he's, you know, like he says all this crazy stuff, but then you look back and he's like, right? So I don't know. So, but he's saying, the leverage on hardware is going to get less and less, but the leverage on software is only going to increase. And that's where all the value creation will come from. Technology's first law is that whatever can be done over the internet will be done over the internet. The statement might sound obvious, but the implications are far reaching, he says. Big concern here and something to impede that will impede innovation heavily is regulation. Okay, so he's saying, and this seems simple, but it's actually crazy. He's saying the first rule, first rule of technology is that anything that can be done over the internet will eventually be done over the internet. But regulation might actually leave us behind in certain situations. So think of Airbnb and Uber. So hotel and taxi is, is what those things are replacing. But hotel and taxi regulations cost an effective $100 billion of value that could have been created in Uber and Airbnb. But that is just Uber and Airbnb. So let's just say that, you know, the regulations say no Uber. Like, oh, well, that's not a big deal. Okay, maybe. But think about the total value created. 
It's unseen, it's much higher, and it's incalculable. How much time has been saved in parking? How much are employees paid? Yes, these specific companies are valuable, but the unseen benefits to all of society are on the order of trillions of dollars of value being created. Okay, so this is like an important point I wanted to flesh out for a second. So think about that. Think of Uber, okay? Like, what are all the things that if, if Uber doesn't exist and I'm forced to use taxis, I'm forced to have bad, bad service, I'm forced to overpay, I'm, you know, forced to maybe even buy a car. Um, you know, ju let's just say it's reasonable to say that, you know, if I have to use taxis pretty often or if I have to use Uber pretty often, I might save 25 bucks a month, uh, you know, using Uber. And now let's say I'm a taxi driver or I'm the average taxi driver. It might... Think of how much time I have to spend driving around trying to find customers versus the customers come to me. And so, you know, multiply that by millions upon millions of users on both sides of the transaction and then expand that to every possible industry. And you can see how it isn't just Uber and Airbnb or these evil companies making a bunch of money. The per unit cost of being a human being in living in today's world is going to get massively less all the while quality is increasing. But he brings up, you know, think about it. What is the FDA holding us back? What about the what about the FAA, SEC? I don't even know, CDC, throw in your acronym. It's quite possible to achieve many of the objectives of these regulatory agencies with new technology in a better way. So he's saying, we gotta be careful with all this regulation because the regulation is is forcing an old model but if there's a new model that comes in, it could be that the new model contained in the new model is better than even the best regulated old model. So think about this. Go back to Airbnb and Uber. If you look at their review systems, you'll see real-time star ratings of both buyers and sellers updated on a per-ride or per-stay basis. So think about that. Every single time a seller or a buyer touches this economy almost, good and bad feedback, is incorporated that is much more responsive as a regulatory system than i don't know think of like a taxi certification or a hotel inspector like to be a successful taxi driver i need to pass i don't know an exam once or maybe like pay some money quarterly or something i don't know to a successful hotel like once a year a government inspector comes who also doesn't really fucking care about their job and maybe is like hey you know i'm planning on coming next week so you know if you've got a bunch of bodies go go hide them compare that to thousands of real-time ratings after every single interaction aggregated for every single hotel or taxi you have the option of staying at regulators just don't have the same level of fast precise digital feedback between buyers and sellers if you're a bad actor on airbnb or uber you are banned within a few hours. Imagine, you know, I could be a serial killer, okay, hypothetically, and I could go uh, be a taxi driver. And I don't know, think of how long I could go undetected. So long. Now imagine trying to do that on Uber. Okay, cool, let me call somebody here. It's like, oh, wow. Um, hey, Troy. Why is seven of your last rides matched down to email address and name and like geolocation? Why are they dead? I'm like, um, I found them like that. Like I, I would get caught within a week being too conservative. 
actually leads to systemic risk. Systemic risk happens when you stop taking risks and, and get stuck with a system that no longer improves. So he's saying if, you know, if we get too stuck in these regulations, some of those things that Rat Taleb told us long ago, they start to happen. More technology, more progress. We didn't fly for the entire history of humanity and then suddenly we did. Our only real constraint is physical law. This is why I don't pay much attention to people claiming something is impossible based solely on past failure. Things change, technology advances, and the mythical Icarus is succeeded by the very real Wright brothers. Believing the next problem is solvable is a fundamental tenet of the philosophy of technology. Fucking David Deutsch up in here, problems are soluble. We're at the beginning of infinity. Technology is the driving force of history. Regimes rise and fall, but technology is up and to the right. What distinguishes man from ape is technological progress. The more things that can get done without you thinking about them, the more civilization progress there has been. We should be entering a golden age of productivity. Within living memory, computers did not exist. Photocopiers did not exist. You cannot search your documents, let alone sort them, back them up, look things up, copy and paste, and more. You had to type everything out on a typewriter. If you're doing information work now, relative to your ancestors who worked with papyrus, paper, or typewriters, you are a golden god surfing on a sea of electrons. Drink. You can make things happen in seconds. That would have that would have taken weeks. And so, like, I mean, we just have plugged into Balaji's brain here. We're, we're still in the technology section, and he's just going in. It continues. No break, no timing to stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here we are. The impact of technology. The assumption behind sci-fi shows like Black Mirror is that the present is okay, but technology could make the future dystopian. Perhaps the present is dystopian, and technology is our only hope for a positive future. Jesus Christ. Technology lowers prices. Prices are up in healthcare, education, and real estate, but they're down in computers and telecommunications. In every area technology touches, the price decreases. Everyone becomes more equal because they have the same iPhone or Android phone experience. So that's a crazy point. Like, technology hits this level of universality where, you know, Jeff Bezos probably has the nicest, most unlocked, most advanced version of an iPhone, and it's probably three grand compared to compared to normal person has to pay a thousand dollars, Jesus Christ, for for an iPhone. But it's like ninety five percent the same. You know that is what technology is doing. It is democratizing for everyone. The consumer economy actually creates a form of equality. Every area the government touches, though, sees prices inflate. Boo hiss. For example, in medicine, a doctor is required to be in the loop for any diagnostic decisions, even if AI can do it better than 99% of doctors. We aren't allowed to automate the doctor because of regulation. There is obviously value in tradition, but of course, there's a tension between tradition and innovation. Going to the moon wasn't tradition. It was just awesome. This is the technology within humanity itself. This is a crazy good example. He says a lot of people don't really appreciate how awesome technology is. <laughs> we know you do, so tell us. 
Think about map making technologies. I mean, even just like old school map making as in like draw on a map and everybody agrees that it's the same map and like the top of this mountain ridge is the end of the territory. But now think of even like better than that, but map making technologies enable the creation of accurate maps. We take this for granted today, but without good maps, there were no explicit borders. Only a gradual diminishing of the power of one sovereign as its territory bled into another. Feudalism was enforced by knights on horseback in shining armor with heavy swords. Guns changed that. Guns reduced the importance of physical inequality. Any man with a gun could kill any other man, even if the shooter was a frail 80-year-old man and the shootee was Sir Lancelot himself. A strong right arm was suddenly worth a lot less than a strong left brain because the technology and supply chain to produce muskets was suddenly critical. The gun helped catalyze the transition from, from feudal hierarchy to the ideals of the American and French Revolution. To be against technology is to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah, he's saying, if you're against guns, you're on the wrong side of history. You said it, not me, dog. You can't put the genie back in the bottle. You won't take away voices, newly gained by billions. There's so much emerging technology to be excited about. Bitcoin, crypto, startup cities, reversing aging, brain-machine interfaces, VR, 3D printing, and more. The incredible thing many people don't get is that technology is just getting started. We're only at the base of the exponential. We're at the beginning of infinity, as kids these days say. What is politically feasible is a function of what is technologically feasible. And so he weaves in some thoughts about politics. And I don't really like politics. It's like, let me just live on my compound and leave me alone. But it's interesting what he's saying, which is that there are these, all these political ideas out in the world. But like, you can't, you know, the political ideas are constrained by what is technologically feasible. You know, like, how could you have uh, instantaneous voting of every single person in a democracy if, uh, you know, like, you don't even have paper? You couldn't. Every political idea has been out there since antiquity. What waxes and wanes is the technological feasibility of ideas. Technology is now making all those impractical libertarian ideas not just practical, but inevitable. Today, though, we have 90-year-old laws wielded by 70-year-old people to prevent 20-somethings from using 21st century technology. Society, driven by technology, goes through cycles of centralization and decentralization. The decentralization phase approaches. So this is like his kind of cyclical theory about the fucking world, but it's reasonable. So think of, think of 1800s, okay? And you had New York City and California. Well, super difficult to coordinate between those two. So just a necessary decentralization happened because like you couldn't run California from New York. It was just impossible. But then with technology and the TV, one could broadcast to millions. And so a push to centralization was born. But now with the, with the personal computer and even Bitcoin, he's saying, the 21st century may in many ways be the opposite of the 20th. And so it's interesting, but I write this right now on my 25-acre farm, and I'm using the power of technology, shouting into the internet, but even in my day job. I work a job that previously 
I would have had to either commute an hour long each day or live in the city. I have the same benefits now, but decentralized. It's not so much that decentralization is a panacea, it's that when you are over-centralized, you decentralize. And then when people over-decentralize, they re-centralize, but around new hubs each time. So it's just like some commentary, you know, we're in the technology section, he's like, hey, as technology gets better, we actually are able to govern ourselves differently. And we go from decentralized, and then we have to centralize a little bit. And then we now decentralize, and then we centralize a little bit. And he's saying we're entering the age of decentralization. You can summon the CEO of Facebook to Congress. You can't summon the CEO of email. There is no CEO. That is where we're all going. Our digital future. Speaking of where we're all going. Physical, then digital, then native digital. So this is his like evolution of the world. We went from pieces of paper to a scanner printer fax to purely digital files that have no physical origin. We may go from physical cash to an online bank balance to cryptocurrency, which is inherently digital. But think about that. So what he's saying is like, think about all the areas where digitally native versions of something don't exist. It's like before taxis, there was no digitally native version of taxis, but now Uber is a digitally native version. And with his first law of technology, everything's gonna move to digitally native versions. So, you know, somebody doing hay, there's apparently gonna be a digitally native version of that. I mean, I guess I did just buy a fucking house off uh, Facebook Marketplace. That's interesting. Hmm, okay. Basing for every industry, multiply that by a billion permutations. And what makes it even crazier is the blockchain disruption. Crypto will disrupt tech, just like tech disrupted everything else. There is overlap, but crypto is really a different sector down to the base level of how organizations are formed, monetized, and exited. I would be far more bearish on our future if Bitcoin didn't exist. If the, if the internet was programmable communication, crypto is programmable money. Before Bitcoin, you needed to deal with a bank to, to deploy value. Crypto is a new financial system. Crypto is about digital property rights. By default, you should own your social media account. A platform that can seize it without due process is like a bank that can seize your money at will. <sighs> Drank. So like two, I don't know, of, of the best Americans that exist right now is Tim Kennedy and Mike Glover. Both of them military veterans, you know, preparedness trainers, but like their social media gets harassed all the time demonetized banned kicked off and like that's how they're building their business and feeding their family like they've got i don't know two hundred thousand dollars a month coming in of revenue and then you know the the social media companies are just like eh, you know you you taught us the el presidente drill so uh we're gonna take two hundred thousand dollars from you and what balaji's saying is that crypto is digital property rights. They should own their ability to speak without people being able to take that down and steal from them. Your social media is not just about your tweets or your posts. It is your relationship to your friends and followers. It is your ability to earn money without YouTube taking a big cut of revenue or just turning it off. 
I mean, imagine a social network built on a blockchain where based in where baked into it are tokens. I mean, you'd basically have a marketplace built into the software because all value becomes digital. Our entire economy will eventually become the crypto economy. One thing people don't get is that crypto is not just the next Wall Street. It's also the next Silicon Valley. Even less, obviously, it's the next Yale, Columbia School of Journalism and Kennedy School of Government. Why? Because Yale law will get replaced by smart contracts. So, okay, a little bit of summary on that shit. So, and like, this is also, he's saying all this cool stuff and this is like the crypto talking points, but like, it hasn't, it hasn't like exactly worked like this. Um, the, the thought is that crypto is going to be this perfectly trackable, um, immutable source of money that's going to replace cash. But the, but the issue is like, why would I never buy Starbucks in Amazon stock? Well, because it's like that Amazon stock in 10 years could be like 30 times more. I don't want to waste my potential upside on buying Starbucks. And I feel like that is actually how Bitcoin is working right now. Like nobody wants to buy Starbucks with Bitcoin because you know, you've heard that story of this guy who bought a pizza with like 10,000 Bitcoins. And then now that pizza costs like a billion dollars. And so that's his vision. His thought is that the whole world will shift to a blockchain crypto economy. And so smart contracts are like um, automatically executable things that happen. And so it's like, hey, uh, once, hey, I'm going to be your sales coach. And at the end of each hour, you're going to press a button that says, yep, it happened. Or even better than that, it'll be baked into, uh, you know, our Microsoft Teams uh, meeting that's coded a certain way that's going to kick off a smart contract and I'm going to just get paid the second that I'm done with that meeting. So all of that is like TBD, super cool. I wouldn't bet against Balaji though, but I'm not sure it's worked like that yet. We are entering a frontier, a digital frontier. In 1890, the physical frontier closed. In 1991, a virtual frontier opened the internet. The major differences with this virtual frontier is that anyone with a keyboard can build on it, not just Americans. People's bodies may be in various nations or countries, but their minds are elsewhere, online with communities of shared interests and beliefs. Over the last few decades, a significant part of the value of being physically present in America has been digitized. COVID-19 and remote work accelerated digital life and further reduced the value of the physical. Eventually, all value will become digital. I think in the future, most value will be created online and you'll print it out by invoking robots. But dude, like imagine a water heater. Okay, imagine if every house has a has a 3D printer and the 3D printer can print like basic PVC stuff and basic metal stuff. I don't know if it can print metal, but let's just pretend. And you know, if I, I'm gonna create a water heater now, where it's super modular and any parts that break can be easily 3D printed. If everybody has a 3D printer, why would you ever need a plumber to come fix it? Oh, hey, these are the four ways that water heaters break. Hmm, I'm gonna print one of these. Boom, print, there we go. And that's what he's kind of talking about when all value will become digital. And again, like 
that's really real. There are people predicting like, yeah, I don't think the computer's gonna be that big of a hit. So like, I generally don't believe people can predict, but Bellagio just doesn't give a fuck about that. And he's making all types of predictions. All labor can become capital. When that happens, being really, really good at engineering just gets higher and higher and higher leverage. So he's just saying like, okay, if, if all this stuff is true, what are some skills that are that are still going to be valuable? And he's saying being really good at engineering. Now, this is interesting because you look at like a large language model in ChatGPT, a lot of development is getting somewhat commoditized. But I would say it's probably still true. But I also think getting really, really good at sales probably also is a good thing to do. Being really good at software is going to keep earning compounding returns. That's important. All wealth will go digital, not just currencies, loans, stocks, commodities, but even art, every type of human wealth. Uh, okay. Like imagine a public ledger of property rights. So like my house will now be a digital asset that I could buy and sell. And there could be a digital home inspector who like uh, goes into the public blockchain and, and selects like, okay, roof, this quality, this, this quality, this, this quality. And like that gets, that data is aggregated with the house's value. Like any appraisal that happens would happen on the public ledger. I don't know. We're fucking so far from that Balaji, but I'm down. There's an, another section that I can just summarize as like, Balaji loves robots. Okay, great. Not just life extension, youth extension. Ending death should be the highest priority of technology. We now know that reversing aging may be technically achievable. <sighs> okay, little buddy, uh, we're pushing through. When you deal with mechanical things like cars, you can calculate failure rate for each part. Some cars are lucky and never experience any of those failures. Maybe one out of 10,000 cars may make it 50 or 100 years without being repaired because errors don't accumulate. By random chance, a car might be able to last a long time. But humans aren't like this. There's a hard drop-off at 120 years old. If humans broke down like cars, some humans would live to 1,000. Instead, what happens is a predictable and coordinated process where people kind of go gray and get fat in similar ways as they age. And he just has a tweet, get life extension or die trying. Aging may be a reversible condition if it is caught early. Now I just read Outlive by Peter Atia and it was super complicated and shit, but like basically Peter Atia says, eat less calories, exercise. That's, you know, be strong. That's like pretty close to what we've got right now. But, um, Balaji is more bullish on life extension technology than Peter Atia is. And so continuing this thought of like life extension, but human enhancement, he has this idea called transhumanism, self-improvement with technology. The goal of transhumanism is to simply become the absolute best version of yourself. It is self-improvement with technology. It encompasses self-measurement, external devices like phones, watches, glasses, earbuds, body, body modifications, super soldier serums, brain machine interfaces, nootropics, smart drugs. God damn it. I think we're just going to take a sip in honor of those crazy thoughts. If we were to, if we were to deliver just some of those, so like 
super soldier shit, body modifications. I want to, you know, dude, imagine being an MMA fighter, but just having metal shins. <laughs> that would be pretty crazy. Uh, if we were to deliver some of those and scale to millions of people, it would be huge. Now, this is such a good example because like he sounds like he's saying crazy shit and he is. But actually think about it though. We've been doing this with technology forever. Think about eyeglasses. We don't even think about that, but that technology solved such a massive problem that existed legitimately all through human history where people can't see. You would imagine you're, you know, you're a badass soldier, but you can't see. Yeah, sorry. When I first started um, dating my wife, we out of a joke because it she would happen all the time. She would go, "Ew, a kitty." It wouldn't be a kitty. It'd be a rock or be a bag. And I have 2010 vision, so like it was so obvious to me, not a kitty. And then she got LASIK and it's fixed now. But that is a uh, it's an example, but he's saying that all technology follows that. My approach is optimalism. That is improving things in an objective way, neither using too much technology or too little. Humans have been living with technology in this way forever. Fire arguably made us human. Dude, okay, that's so fucking crazy because yes, it's like we've been living with fire and eyeglasses and indoor plumbing in these ways forever. Carrying water, warm clothes, clothes are technology. The invention of fire allowed humans to outsource some of our metabolism to the fire and allocate more scarce calories for brain development. Technology is actually what makes us human. The future I envision is much better than how we now live. Future humans will look back on this time the same way we look back on starving medieval peasants. We can ascend. Our current constraints will fall away. We can expand to the stars. We can live underwater. What else comes next is up to you. Okay, we're going to drink, but then we're going to pause ale drinking game because I can't send this recording to wise and esteemed Eric Jorgensen, and it's just the rantings of a blackout animal. But that ends the technology section. And for ease of consumability and because... You know, my give a fuck meter is just low generally right now this year. I typically do a bunch of different episodes, and I might still do that in the future. But our buddy Eric Jorgensen shouldn't have to listen to like fucking four different episodes so that I can consistently release my podcast. So we're doing, we're just going to do one episode of this whole shit. So that was the first section. That was the technology. Okay, we're going to dip our toes into the second section which is truth but a lot of that comes from like Balaji's rich and Balaji's famous and Balaji's really smart and good at solving problems and so Balaji is triggered by all of the negativity on social media and all of the like man our government's so dumb like I'm pretty sure I can build a smarter system guys and uh, so this is some of his thoughts on like truth and I don't really care about that that much. But we're going to take out the best parts, and then we're going to go on to building the future part three. But there's some good stuff. Okay, I don't want to. I don't want to hammer Mr. Blodgy because then he'll come kick my ass. You're pursuing truth, health, and wealth in that order. 
that's actually the right priority order. For example, you'd never want to do something that's untrue to make money or sacrifice your long-term health for wealth. Learn to determine what is true. Pursue health because without that, you have nothing else really. Then wealth is important, but it's third, though it's important to have that third. Now, I think that's probably right, but it's also, again, that's like the guys who are so fucking jacked or they're really, really good fighters. And they're like, you know, if I could tell my younger self, like, don't push so hard. And you're like, that's easy for you to say, bro, you have $300 million, but all right, I'm down. He goes in and he uh, does a, a bunch of sections, which I can summarize as like, he fucking loves science. And then he talks about the couple different types of truth. And this is all we're really going to pull from this truth section, but somewhat interesting. There's technical truth. And this is like genetics, math, biochemistry. They're true even if nobody believes them. The only thing better than science is math. And good news, heifers, computers are mathematical equipment. You can run billions and billions of calculations per second. So, like, the first type of truth is technical truth, which is very close to, like, computer calculations. Like, they're just, hey, this code works great. He's triggered by political truth because politics at its root is about tribes, not truth. In politics, there's almost never an incentive to tell a truth that could annoy your tribe. You know, like if you're a conservative and you didn't like Trump, and you're like, yeah, he seems like a crazy greaseball. Like everybody's going to get mad at you, even though like that's a pretty reasonable position. It's not just about free speech. It's about the cost of speech. If you're jailed by the state for speech, you may not speak out. But if you're fired by an employer for speech, or I'll say if your YouTube channel is demonetized because you're teaching people about firearms like Tim Kennedy, that's cost too. A cost greater than most can pay. Costly speech means only the wealthy can speak freely. Popularity does not equal truth. We have a huge problem in every area where social consensus determines truth. It's much deeper than people think. Holy lies, like the ones that animated the Soviet regime, unfortunately work surprisingly well in the short term because you can bully or trick people into conforming to them. But in the medium or long term, they don't work. So think about some of those holy lies. So if I'm a decent sized company, we'll say, and I'm trying to figure out, like I'm paying for this office space, do I bring people back to the office? I could start throwing out these holy lies, these Soviet talking points of like, we're just better together. Everybody needs to come back in the office. And then all of a sudden I wake up and it turns out that I should have questioned that holy lie and 40% of my workforce leaves that year. So the second type of truth, which he basically was like, is not true, is politics. And then the third truth, which I would be ashamed of the crypto guy if he didn't bring it up, is cryptographic truth cryptocurrency has taken truths that were purely political and started to anchor them to technical truths okay now we have an answer to what literal truth is through cryptography and how the blockchain manages information provides online decentralized truth mathematical truths which anyone has access to everybody knows how much bitcoin you have whether you're Israeli, Palestinian, Democrat, or Republican. 
there's actually no contention over who owns what Bitcoin, which is kind of amazing because it's a trillion dollar piece of international property. That's the kind of thing people usually fight over that says something. So like is Israel and Palestine were at war again um, over this like piece of land. And Balaji's saying part of that is because there's an argument over property rights. Well, baked into the blockchain system, there's no argument over property rights. The blockchain is the most important development in history since the advent of writing itself. And he gives an example. So crop insurance. If I, you know, like let's say that I'm a farmer and I've got a bunch of corn and I don't exactly know how this works, but like I can imagine this, um, you know, I could say, hey, I'm going to buy crop insurance. And if, if it's above a certain, if the temperature is above a certain amount, for this many days and that causes a bad crop then you know pay me x difference or, or whatever that's like how crop insurance works right now but right now that's like mediated through humans and insurance companies but imagine if it was automatically executed by sensors i weather sensor six say it is 82 degrees in indiana today at this time then we get a timestamp of temperature on chain this will happen not just for temperature but for crime statistics so you know police traffic stops that is time stamped into the blockchain medical records zillow won't publish aggregate stats they will they will provide a feed of real estate transactions happening in real time just like uber and airbnb in theory you could eventually download the public blockchain to replay the entire cryptographically verified history of a community. Well, dude, it's going to get a lot harder to commit crimes. And then he closes out this truth section, basically just like 50 pages that can be summarized as like social media kind of sucks. And there's probably a crypto solution. These, these are some thoughts about it. Section two done. And the last part that we're going to cover, we're going to pull out the best parts of building the future. What should we be thinking about? the wisdom on startups, what's coming down the pipe, how should we build ourselves, should we start a company, what should we do, what skills should we develop, here are Balaji's thoughts. To get lucky, you must first take a chance, adopt a mindset of abundance. You want a win-win mentality rather than a crabs-in-the-bucket mentality. A win-and-help-win mentality is even better. So he's saying, Win-win means like, hey, let's create a transaction that will help us both win. And, and Balaji's saying, well, actually, the actual best way is, yes, we want to do that. But then when you win, you need to help other people win too. Win and help win is actually the profit maximizing strategy in the long run. And I actually think like that book, The Go-Giver, which says, hey, you'll be fine, but selflessly help other people and karma is true like even if you're the most self-interested person there is when you win and help other people win that's the profit maximizing strategy in the long run okay creating your own wealth many people don't understand that wealth can be created my first counterexample for them who did steal who did steve jobs steal all the iphones from great question if wealth is a zero-sum game where one's personal gain is someone else's loss, where did the phones come from? 
And that's like the crazy thing that people don't understand about economics is when you trade, value is created. A surprising number of people seem to believe profit is a function of sufficient malevolence. You can write a piece of software on a computer and then set up a website and people will pay you money for your software. What are you actually doing there? With no natural resources, just by hitting keys, you created a pleasing configuration of electrons. At a very fundamental level, you created order from disorder. The internet allows you to clone and export your creation to millions of users around the world who just click to pay for it. Power compels, but money persuades. Money looks to be zero sum because after a trade, someone has more money and someone has less. But in a voluntary exchange, both A and B gain because they get non-monetary benefit from making a trade. Wealth creation is the technological creation of order. <sighs> Dude. So, he, so he's just saying, hey fuckers, economics is true, okay? And you can go just create value by building something people need. Your simple formula for financial independence. The less money you need, the less dependent you are. I don't buy cars or homes. After I earned a big payout, whenever I could save time with money, I did. That's the single biggest change I made. I'm not a consumption person. I'm a production person. I'm not burning capital on stuff. Everything is going into the next compounding outcome. Not just compounding money, though. Money's important. But knowledge compounds other knowledge. Impact the same. Reducing your cost of living by one-fifth is way easier than increasing your net worth by 5x. If you're willing... You can, if you're willing, you can move to the middle of nowhere and cut your expenditures. You can just read Kindle and live on simple healthy foods. Dude, <laughs> agreed. Add in master deer hunting and create a firearm martial art and you're on to something, son. Instead of living in California, you can live in, now I added this, Indiana and maybe save 70 to 80K per year. So every single year you work, you're building up one or two years of time off. That's time off you can use to start a company. It's like angel investing in yourself. This is another way to become financially independent. And don't be afraid to start small. Today, we associate startups with Silicon Valley, venture capital, and computer science. In the past though, it was other businesses like oil, steel, pharmaceuticals, and telegraphs. The automobile, aviation, and telephone industries can all be characterized as past startups. Even Eli Lilly and Company, a huge pharmaceutical conglomerate, started out in the back of a pharmacy. When you think about oil, steel, pharmaceuticals, you do not think, I'm gonna go and start that in a garage. But that's what these people did, and don't be afraid to do it yourself. Some guy named Samuel Kyer started an oil refinery on 7th and Grant in downtown San Francisco, which is insane. An oil refinery is a multi-billion dollar facility. <laughs> to visualize starting one in your apartment in a city is almost laughable. It's astonishing to think that's where oil refining began. The most important features of those industries early on were low cost of capital to start a business, wide open regulatory technology and physical frontiers. <laughs> and so through all of this, he's just like throwing out a bunch of thoughts and he's saying, okay, hey, if you want to, you know, I'm rich. So people ask me about financial freedom. So you say, first is you got to adopt an, a mindset of abundance. So life has to be a win-win. And it's not just like, that's not like 
fake. That's like a real actual fact is if you, there are ways you can go out and I can win and you can win. And then he's saying, add in, if you win, help other people win. He's saying you can create your own wealth, you know, write some software. But his simple formula for financial independence is move to a compound in Indiana and then you don't have to live in goddamn California. And finally, don't be afraid to start small. Just start something. Eli Lilly started in a pharmacy. And so we've talked about this frontier concept, but he's saying that technology is a frontier. When there's no frontier, things get stagnant. There's infighting, things become zero sum, AKA there's a winner and a loser. This all changes when a frontier opens up. A new realm of unoccupied space means resources are suddenly less scarce. Those who don't like the current order can leave for the frontier. You know, back in the day, frontier was like a driving force of American history. You know, if I was ambitious, I could just leave. I could try to seek my fortune, national aspiration, a bare land as a canvas for social experiments. Closing the frontier took paths away from ambitious people because they couldn't easily become founders on their own plots of land. But technology now has given us a new frontier. The reopening of the digital frontier could lead us again to a time of greatness. Frontiers give pioneers space to innovate without affecting those who don't consent to the experiment. Don't argue, build. Don't argue about regulation, build Uber. Don't argue about monetary policy, build Bitcoin. Don't argue about anything, just build the alternative. The legacy institutions are beyond saving. Build something better and bury them. If I had anything left to drink, I would drink it, Balaji. Sheer, dogged persistence is often mistaken for luck. Success may be a low probability event, but perseverance increases your sample size. And that was like the majority of his predictions about the future, about where we're going. And now because he is a founder, he's, a, he's been a founder, and um, he's, a, he's an investor in venture capital, he's going to drop some knowledge just on, you know, I'm sure he runs across people who are thinking about starting companies, starting companies. And so he's like, here's some thoughts if you're thinking about founding a company. Every startup and every project starts as a hallucination. At the beginning, the idea is a word on a napkin. At every stage, you have to believe it is bigger than it is. Founders are selected for legitimacy and competence. The state has far more money than anyone else, but NASA is behind SpaceX because tech isn't capital limited. It's competence limited. So he's saying founders are selected. A big part of that is competence. You gotta like be good. Founders are neither dictators nor bureaucrats because they are legitimate and competent. The bureaucrat is selected by election. The dictator is selected by power, but neither is selected for competence. A startup is just one kind of vehicle. I wouldn't fixate too much on the vehicle. Don't do a startup unless you're ideologically driven to make it succeed. You need something beyond economic motivation because startups are very hard. There are much lower risk ways to earn money than a startup. Building a startup is an extremely stressful journey toward infinity. And so he says, let's say you've decided that you're gonna start a company. What do you do now? 
How do you know what to do? Well, you probably have to research. When you decide to start a company, you begin a massive search in an idea space. Are you going to do machine learning, consulting, genomics? You can use numbers to rank order ideas or, or potential market size, but even that has pitfalls. For something like Uber, if you'd only looked at the market size of taxis, you could never have believed you could build such a large company. At first, your goal setting should be qualitative. You have to have some ideological, motivational, inspirational, or for lack of better terms, spiritual component on why you want to build something. Usually, it springs from a passion, often positive, but sometimes negative. So, so he's saying is like, you know, I just love deer hunting. But I remember, like, I had to buy a 25-acre compound so that I could fucking deer hunt. I remember when I lived in the city and I wanted to do it, and I just couldn't. I want to give the common man the ability to deer hunt. That's going to be why I'm going to start. And so he's saying, you got to start qualitative. And then you run the numbers. You build the bridge between the qualitative and the quantitative. The qualitative is the compass. Hey, I just want to give the common man deer hunting. I don't know exactly what that is, but that's what I want to do. The quantitative is measuring the progress along the compass. You can't use metrics to decide which direction to go. So that's a great point. So he's saying the qualitative, so that, that feeling that like less ability to measure aversion, that's your compass. But then the metrics, those are your measurements, but you can't you know, your measurements can't tell you where to go. Once you're getting 10, 20, 30 customers, you can start thinking about optimizing. And then this is just like a quote that Eric threw in, but it's super good. Contrarian is temporary. You're a contrarian until you convince everyone you're right. Then your ideas become conventional wisdom. Then you repeat. And he says, this is where looking at history is important. Since human nature is constant across space and time, other countries and past cultures are worth study. Learn from history so as not to repeat it. And so I think this is like the same lesson I learned. I, I read this book called The uh, Economic History of the World, which sounds so boring, and it was boring, but it was also interesting because like the world existed in a way, and then all of a sudden there were like ways to connect groups of people. And so that happened through mountain passes that happened through canals that happened through waterways and any time that you could connect groups of people value just started to happen and i started to realize i was like oh okay when you connect two groups of people that that weren't connected before then just money just spirals off because people start to trade and then value is truly created and so he's saying don't like care about oh well this is the history of the shipping industry it's more like what does the history of the shipping industry allow me to understand about life broadly and he's saying hey if you're gonna if you're gonna found a company that's cool but searching out your own path is deeply underemphasized don't just look at TechCrunch or twitter to innovate you have to tune out a lot of what the valley is thinking i can't imagine Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, got the idea for Bitcoin by reading TechCrunch. And so TechCrunch is, I think, some like startup magazine where like 
if you really, really want to get good at startups, you like read TechCrunch a lot. But he's saying like, in reality, dude, just be good. And then like, they'll write about you in TechCrunch. Set aside everything tech people are talking about and look at the rest of human civilization. Look for the areas technology has not yet moved into. That's where the opportunities will be. A framework I often use is the evolution from the physical version to the intermediate form to the internet native version. So we've talked about this, but like we transitioned from face-to-face meetings to Zoom meetings, which is like a scanner for faces, and then maybe to digitally native VR meetings. I don't know. But he says, once you see this pattern, you can see it everywhere. Look for places where we're still stuck in the scanned version, where we've taken an offline experience and put it online, but haven't fundamentally innovated. These are opportunities for innovation. The best entrepreneurs are logical enough to think of unpopular truths and then social enough to make those truths popular. He believes in software. An internet startup has the ability to grow very, very fast and to scale to large markets. It can start in a dorm room and scale to the entire world. In the early days of a startup, you want to choose the best technologies available and innovate on only one thing, your product. Outside of your business's core technology, you want to be as boring and vanilla as possible until you begin to make a serious profit from your first product. If you are a founder, you will need to handle things you never thought about before. When you walk into an engineering class, the lights are on, the rent is paid, and you can focus on understanding code. But when you start a company, you're responsible for calling the electrician to get the lights working, finding money to pay rent, and pushing the envelope of new technology. At the beginning, you have no product, no money, and the lights are off. And so what he's saying is like, yeah, I made $385 million. I know you want to make $385 million, but in reality, I got a little bit lucky. I'm also good, but you got to do this because you have a spiritual desire to be involved with this shit because like it might be 15 years before you're even somewhat successful. If you're just doing it for the money, you will quit. You're going to have to come on and like, yeah, you think it's coding like in college? No, dude. Hey, guess where your office is it's under a bridge go figure it out he talks about hiring he talks about managing i'm skipping over some of that but like my favorite quote from the hiring section is hire geniuses no one knows yet i'm most excited when i see a smart person who does not have credentials already because that's a good value i can hire them pay them reasonably well and help them level up i can give them the biggest opportunities they've had in their lives But from a price performance standpoint, you want geniuses that nobody knows yet. And you want to hire people who are better than you. And this is so obvious, but like, you know, this is, it's like the wisdom of crowds thing where, you know, if, if you are better, if you're the best person at your company, then it's your brain plus a thousand other less good brains. But if, you know, you hire people who are way better than you and then you like understand their world but you let them go, then, you know, you combine that and the global outcome is way better. So don't have an ego. Hire people who are better than you. It'll be okay, little buddy. Uh, Whatever. Managing people. Read this book called High High Output Management. There you go. Um, Okay. Now he's talking about executing. So like, okay, so this is just the, this is the safari through, hey, you want to be a startup founder? Here's a couple things that you should think about. Good luck. 
um, execution. What does good execution involve in concrete terms? The execution mindset means doing the next thing on, to, on the to-do list at all times. Rewrite the list every day or every week in response to progress. This is easy to say, but extremely hard to do. It means saying no to other people, saying no to distractions, saying no to fun, and exerting all your waking hours on the task at hand. Execution is about running through the idea maze fast. Think about each task on the list as clearing a turn on the maze. The most important tasks get you closer to the exit, or at least a treasure chest for some power-ups. Sometimes, business is about figuring out really non-obvious things. More frequently, it's about just doing the obvious thing. So he's saying, okay, so now you're a founder. What do you do? Okay, it's follow your to-do list and do the next thing on the list at all times and think about it like each time you check something off the list, you're moving a little bit faster through the maze. So the a little bit farther through the maze. So the faster you can check things off your list with high quality, the faster you move through the maze. And if you check off something really important, like ah, negotiate big supplier relationship, then you maybe just got to power up. And now you can go a little bit longer in the maze. But execution in his mind is just doing the obvious thing. And so the last two things we're going to talk about here is productivity and how to, how to sustain a high output. The productivity playbook. Write out your goals. It's amazing how few people do this. I always have a broad mission or direction and everything I learn gets mapped onto it. I have this mental clothesline where I hang ideas among each other. Doing more than one thing is very hard. You can do one big thing and attach a lot of subroutines to it. As individual productivity rises, the amount of consensus needed to build something falls. Today, a few people, or even just one, can prove a crazy idea works. Increased productivity leads directly to increased individual independence. With the internet, your life can begin much earlier than it could 20 years ago. You can fast forward through the demo and tutorial levels and start playing the real game. Okay, so all that was is that he's saying, listen up, buddy. You got to have goals. And like, you can do a few different things, but if it's really helpful if they're all in the service of your main goal. So like, I'm going to be a founder. Okay, great. What are the things that a founder needs to do? Well, I need to be good at accounting. Okay, cool. A subroutine of that goal, be a founder, is... I need to take an accounting class. Okay, great. Now you've got that. But if you're just like, well, I want to be better at accounting. And then it just exists over here in a vacuum. And then it's like, I want to be better at public speaking. It exists over here. He's saying mentally, it's important to like try to think it through so that everything supports your macro goal. And then the second thing that he just said was that nowadays with technology, you know, you have so much leverage that one person can really do things that previously would have taken a whole team. And so you can just fast forward through a bunch of bullshit that that previously you would have had to go like, you know, work in consulting for seven years. Now just like go do it. And his last thought is how to sustain a high output. Because ultimately, you know, yeah, he made 385 million smackers in like two or three years. But you can't expect that. You have 168 hours per week, 112 awake. Substitute capital for time technology for both. Avoid travel, cancel meetings, focus on doing. 
You can work sustainable 70 hour weeks. If you work when you want, sleep when you want, wake up when you want, work out when you want, and never travel. I want to maximize the total number of hours I can work, including weekdays and weekends. I might want to work 16 hours one day, then rest the next. I do meetings only one day. The rest of the week, I'm totally free to work spontaneously. Losing sleep for a night isn't the end of the world. Losing sleep for a year will affect your long-term health. Even if sacrificing sleep seems like the selfless thing to do, on a daily basis, on a long-term basis, you want to take care of your health for the health of those around you. It took me a while to realize sacrificing your physical fitness or health will also impoverish your team in the medium term. You can tap into that short-term health sacrifice for only so long. In the same way that a short-term optimization in engineering means taking on technical debt, you're taking on physical debt if you're not working out and eating right each day. And so what that's basically saying is like, hey, yes, you can you can work hard as shit, for real, but you've got to sleep enough. You've got to work out. you got to be mentally balanced. Like you want to be as crazy and optimized on your plan that you can do with no ill effects for 12 years. Hard work is a competitive advantage. Even the belief that hard work is a competitive advantage is itself a competitive advantage. So he, he like just throws this in. It's not doesn't like exactly match over, but he says the newest technical papers and the oldest books are the best sources of arbitrage. They contain the least popular facts and the most monetizable truths. What do you know to be true that others cannot or will not bring themselves to admit? So Brian Chesky, uh, founder of Airbnb, who, by the way, was a bodybuilder and got fucking jacked. Um, he apparently read a bunch of articles in like the late 1800s about rooming houses, which I, I don't even really know what they are, but like room sharing was what was much more popular around 1900. And he saw solutions in the sharing economy from 100 years ago that he could apply now. Reading books about societal arrangements at other times and places is a very useful thing. You are what you read. And then he just hits us with a reading list. And so, dude, what a journey. I understood some of it. Balaji makes a bunch of crazy predictions. But Eric is going to wind us out of here. As we wind this whore down, he doesn't say that, I did. Uh, we end with a bit of gratitude from and for Eric. Eric says, this project has provided a feast of gratitude for dozens of people over many years. It's staggering to think how many talented people left their fingerprints on these pages. I'm grateful to every one of you for every moment and murmur. Thank you to Balaji for being open to this project. I'm honored by the opportunity to build something around your ideas. It's quite something to trust someone with the raw material of your life's work. I appreciate your trust, generosity, and support. And so, with that, we near the peak, the end, the climax of this podcast. And I'm grateful, right back at Mr. Gorgonson, for sending this my way and allowing me to yell into the internet and dissect Balaji's ideas and Eric's interpretation. And for me, a few takeaways. We're at the beginning of infinity. Technological progress is going to continue to rip our species up from the mud if we let it. Balaji hates the government and social media. Don't play status games. Put your head down. Lift 
create value, and bury the old institutions through new innovation. Be on the lookout for those digitally native versions of successful businesses. And finally, remember, we only have one life. Be authentic, read books, learn, discard your old ideas when you're wrong, get nuts, and attack the bullies like Balaji. Own some Bitcoin, start a company, live life your way, because it might be 10 or even 15 years before you're rich as fuck. And so, you're going to have to play this game in a way that you're cool with. You need to do it while self-actualizing. And I think, broadly, Balaji is telling us to follow the way. And so we end with one of my favorite quotes about the way by none other than Bruce Lee. Be like water, making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object, and you shall find a way around or through it. If nothing within you stays rigid, outward things will disclose themselves. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless. Be like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. If you put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. If you put it into a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water, it can flow or it can crash. Be like water, my friend. Amen. And that, my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.